Welcome to another episode of Leadership Narratives at the Kentucky Psychological Association, where I interview leaders in the field of psychology in Kentucky. My name is Hannah Heitz, and I'm a doctoral student in counseling psychology at the University of Louisville. Today, I'm here with Dr. Jennifer Kelly, licensed psychologist and president of APA. She is the director of the Atlanta Center for Behavioral Medicine with expertise in disorders that involve the relationship between physical and emotional conditions. Dr. Kelly has received numerous awards, including the 2012 Timothy B. Jeffrey Award for Outstanding Contributions to Clinical Health Psychology, the 2011 APA State Leadership Award, the 2011 APA Diversity Award, among many other awards. Welcome, Dr. Kelly. We're so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. It's actually good to be here. So thank you for having me. Um, Well, thanks for taking the time. I know um, you just gave your wonderful presentation on health equity and all the work that you've done um, in your role as president of APA. Yeah, thank you. I've been doing, um, taking that deep dive in health equity. It's it's really interesting because it's something that that's been my life is uh, really health disparities and health equity, but I'd never had it defined as such as, until I started uh, really looking at it and taking this deep dive into it and looking at the science behind it, the research and what's really happening here. And Mm -hmm. so I've been really like living and breathing uh, health equity uh, for over the uh, last year. And I was just looking at when our task force first started meeting and we really started meeting um, in about September of last year. So we've been doing this for over a year now. Wow. Yeah, and I wanted to start off by asking you about your role with the recent passing of the apology for APA's role in perpetuating racism. What was that process like? Um, and it, it's very interesting how this happens. So I think I will go back to several years ago. Um, and that was, I think it was back in 2015. And that is, uh, at that time, our president, um, Dr. Susan McDaniel had gone to Australia and while she was there, she saw how they had, um, the Australian Psychological Society had had, uh, issued an apology to the indigenous population uh, there. And it was really this heartfelt uh, moment and everything related to that. And so they tried to get traction with it in APA to an issue an apology to the indigenous community. And for some reason of reasons, it, it never uh, came to fruition. Um, I'm not sure of all the factors that went into play. I just think that you have multiple groups doing things related to that. So I will fast forward it to uh, 2020. Now, all the time I have been serving on the board of directors of APA. So in fast forward to 2020 and all the things that happened as related to uh, George Floyd. And um, so we knew, uh, I knew, we knew that as psychology, there was some, we can have a, a major impact and, and contribution as it relates to addressing the systemic racism that was occurring in this society, in our society, United States. Because you have people all over the world um, really protesting this and saying, hey, what's going on? We knew that we could make a difference. But it became clear to me that in order for us to make a difference with that, we had to do something internally. 
we had to address uh, what we had done uh, in a really uh, systematic way, I say systematic way, in terms of uh, really uh, harming people of color. Now, and I was thinking about the apology and I was like, you know, the context of America is, the uh, United States is so different than Australia and you have to look at the communities of color when you're talking about an apology. So you have to look at it. And so I felt that that needed to be an apology uh, based on people of color, said the uh, black indigenous people of color and I just called them people of color. Uh, and so, I knew that that was something that we needed to do. We had to address things within our own home in order to real and, and try to work and dismantle racism, not just within our community. And then we can go and look and see what we can do externally. So that was the thinking uh, behind that. And I, I'm one of those uh, people that's like, okay, if this is something I truly believe in, I'm gonna go after it. And I just kept saying, this is something that we need to do. And if you guys don't help give me the support, I'm gonna do it anyway. And so they, uh, and then they provided support. And we actually uh, got, had developed this task force. The thing that was very interesting about this task force, and these are people who are experts in the field of race. And um, so, you know, when the staff contacted them, they really kind of hem and hawed and not really, that uh, warm about it. But when I called them up, everybody that I called uh, said, hey, yes, I will do this. And, and we had just uh, the top tier level of a task force there that worked on this resolution. And they worked very, very hard. And I can tell you that the staff, uh, and it was really uh, guided by Dr. Brian Smedley, and uh, who's uh, just recently left. Um, APA and Dr. Misa Akbar, our Chief Diversity Officer, uh, really spearheaded this thing and, and moved this thing forward. And, and that's how we got to that point. Wow, it sounds like it took a lot of grit and determination from that point in 2015 when you saw this example from Australia up until now releasing it just a few weeks ago. We knew that we had to do something. It's like no one ever wants to really tackle that issue about race because we know that once you kind of open that door, it's like all kinds of things can come up, right? And so, you know, but, you know, that's what we're trained to do is that we deal with conflict. Mm -hmm. So if, if, if we can't work with conflict, then how can we help other people in doing res conflict resolution, you know? So we had to deal with things internally. And I think that um, how we manage this can really uh, set a model. Uh, the other thing is that we had other groups that issued apologies. I don't think that any of the apologies that came from the other groups were, were as methodical and just well developed as what we've done. You know, psychologists, we have to do everything in depth. You know, it's, it's, so we got to go and we got to do this. We got to make sure that base is covered, that base is covered. And so mm -hmm. I just think that it was a much more methodical process and very, very inclusive. Mm -hmm. That's, I was yeah. struck by that as well. I was going to bring that up that like reading the apology from um, APA was so different than reading a lot of other apologies from different organizations that have been released because it, it truly went through, like you said, everything so methodically um, and, and named everything very explicitly, which I don't think was done with every apology I saw at all. No, they just issued, some of them just issued an apology. Okay, so what is your next step gonna be? So you issued an apology, what does that mean? 
And so, so what we're doing is not, we're just not issuing an apology, but we're having to take it to the next step and talk about what, and what, what does that mean? What kinds of things will we do to help make a change? If we knew that these systemic uh, barriers have been occurring, how do, what, what do we do to address those? And so we know that uh, we have to look at all those different segments that I talked about uh, in my uh, talk, you know, education, we have to look at science and publications. We have to look at what's going on in the criminal justice system. And so, and so we know that we have a role in dismantling racism in all its forms uh, with that. And then that whole thing about health equity. So you cannot uh, achieve health equity, really advanced health equity, unless you deal with race and racism. And again, we have to correct it internally before trying to do something externally. Otherwise, we're just being hypocrites as far as mm -hmm. I'm concerned. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. Um, and, and thinking about that, what, what do you see as our role as psychologists in the wake of the recent increased recognition of racial violence in this country and systemic racism in the field as a whole? And I think you, you spoke to that somewhat with the APA apology, but I'm wondering like more broadly for the average person listening. Yeah, I think that, uh, gosh, you know, what, 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 what do we feel is our role in, uh, in, dress, in addressing inequities in society? How do you work with your client in psychotherapy? If you got a person of color and they're telling you uh, these things that are going on in their lives, you have to be able to, um, to think about, you know, systemic kinds of things in, 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 this, in the system in order to help them to make a difference. How can you help them navigate the healthcare system without really looking at some of those systemic barriers that can occur and, and, and addressing them on that level? Now, and then you start thinking about it, okay, from the, a bigger level of society, what it is that we can do, how can we make a difference? Not everyone is you know, an advocate like I am. Um, and, and can go and fight for maternal health for uh, women of color who are black women who are, you know, dying more from childbirth and, and having more uh, infant deaths from childbirth. Not everybody's going to do that, but you can try, you can at least make, try to make some kind of a difference on an individual level. If it's nothing more than having some a level of awareness of what is really going on in this society and help that uh, that that client that you're working with to uh, have the best possible life and and have the access to the best health possible. Mm -hmm. And then remember, I'm, I'm, I think about these things in the context also of my being a, a clinical health psychologist. There are some people who say, you know, this doesn't impact on me. Well, everything that happens in this world impacts on us. Mm -hmm. And so if it's going to affect society, it's going to end up affecting you. And it, it, that's just the way it's going to be. If it's nothing more than crime within that can come in encroach within your neighborhood. So we have to address it because it's going to happen. It's going to impact on us one way or the other. And it's like, hmm, that's not what I signed up for. Well, you are trying to make a difference in people's lives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's part of like the, the system in which we're all living, whether we feel like it impacts us directly or not. Right, it's there. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's, that's helpful to think about. And I think, like you said, like there are different levels of getting involved, but even that awareness and the individual work that we do as psychologists and, and knowledge of those factors. So we're not going into session and being invalidating or perpetuating a lot of the harms that our field has perpetuated for its whole history. Right. So another example of that is if you, if you are evaluating someone and you're doing some psychological testing with them, you have to kind of be aware of what's, you know, how you're interpreting this test and just start, start thinking about this from that, you know, that a cultural context and how they responded to some of the items. So you got all of these things uh, to put into play. Or, you know, I'm like, I do evaluations, I psychological evaluations with my patients. And it's like, I know that the first thing you have to do is to look at that individual and you want to look at the cultural context in, in which they come. And mm -hmm. so you can't, when you're looking at that cultural context and if, there is, if there's a personal color, you're going to have to look at, there's going to be some race and racism there. How, you know, it's just, it, it's right there mm -hmm. that, they, that they will have had to deal with. Even when you think that they won't have to deal with, when have to do that, if you talk to them on that individual level, it's going to hit them. It's going to show you that it hit them some kind of way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I imagine like with your practice, especially like integrating physical and mental health, you, you have so many examples of times where that's um, come to the fore. Right. And, it, and it, it's, it's extremely frustrating uh, to the people that I work with um, to, number one, they don't know what it is, the treatment is that they're getting. And uh, so they don't even, it's like, you just let the, the physician do this thing to you. You don't know what, why are you doing that? Well, if, you know, we know that you have to have a partnership between the physician and the provider in order to have the best outcome. So we, you know, it's like, okay, so let me help you and, and navigate this system, um, you know, appropriately. Mm -hmm. I had, I had an example of it today. Uh, one of and I do chronic pain. I have a patient who has chronic pain, and he has he has a physician, he has a pain management physician. He's an African American male, and his provider is from Syria. So who um, is, is very careful about the medications that he's taking. So he's on chronic opioid therapy. And the patient decides that he wants to really try medical marijuana, right? Because you can have it in Georgia. So he wanted to try medical marijuana. The physician just really talked to him about, you know, you got to be very careful, you know, your chronic opioid therapy. And we know, the, you know, the increase in the opioid death. And you're talking about what happens um, physically with you when you're taking the opioids and you're adding marijuana into this really put in a caution. So mm -hmm. he goes, instead of really talking with the physician about this, he goes to his, goes to Kaiser, who's insured by, and gets the doctor at Kaiser to give him his medical marijuana. And, you know, number one, you could be really breaking the law. Number two, you're supposed to be working with this physician. So you have to have a level of trust with the doctor that you are working with. And so, um, you know, you're African-American, he's Syrian, there's some cultural differences, but you mm -hmm. got to sit down and talk to him because this is really your life. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's those kinds of things that I have to, that I really spend time working with on that basis. Instead of just brushing over it, 
you know, we have to like, okay, you're a partnership, you're a team here. So those are the things that I do. And I and I think that when you talk about things that we do, you know, what do we do on the on on the individual level, those that's an example of it. Mm-hmm. That's an example of doing this on the individual level, considering the cultural context, the social context, and the and the environment within this patient, uh, and the, with the patient that comes to, into your office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that example. That's like a really tangible example of how, like you said, like not feeling comfortable with a provider um, or those cultural differences and barriers can can really impact care in a variety of ways. The physician was really trying to help him um, and he may not have communicated effectively as to why he was trying, you know, what he was really trying to help him to be aware of. Uh, but, uh, you know, the other thing is that if the state really looked at and saw that he, you know, number one, if that they're doing the testing and if they do the testing to find out he's got marijuana in his, in his system without really talking with the physician about it, guess what? The physician will say, hey, I'm done. And guess what? He would not have his chronic opioid therapy that he says has helped him to manage the pain. So Mm -hmm. so that results in worse outcomes for everyone. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, So switching gears a little bit, I'm curious about what changes you think will occur in the field of psychology as a result of COVID-19. I mean, we've seen so so much of a move towards telehealth, but I'm wondering what you think will stay around um, kind of past the pandemic. I think that I think a lot uh, will change as a result of COVID, and I'm not I'm not convinced that uh, we're going to go back to business as usual. I think that on some in some areas that will be business as usual, but uh, I think that um, this thing has had a significant impact on us. It's the way, and another example is the way people are working. You know, so you have people who are wanting to work from home. Now, no one knew that you could just really have that option of working from home. So we have uh, more in, employees now deciding that they want to work from home and they don't want to go into the office. One employee was saying, you have to come in. Well, if you can't get anybody to come in, guess what you're going to have to do is, you know, work with people to try to look at the face of work and how do, how can we navigate this if we're going to have more employees uh, working from home now. So you got the whole workforce is looking different. And I can't, I can't, I cannot fully understand why there still is this workforce shortage, you know, why we still have things on the barges and things like that. So um, there's something that's going on about people not working and, um, and so we got to figure that one out. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I know that part of it is people want to do kind of what they want to do, uh, when they want to do it and how they want to do it, but how do you make a living uh, like that? And so how do you balance your quality of life and, 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 and earning an, an income with that? So we're going to have changes of that that we're going to be looking at. I do think that... Um, uh, patients are not going to be as eager to come into office sessions as they had been. I have opened my office up for uh, sessions for people who've been fa- vaccinated and they have to wear a mask. 
And, and it's the thing that's very interesting is they will say, oh, I'm okay. I'm good. <laughs> you know, I'm good with the, with the virtual sessions. So I don't think that we're going to ever fully go back to the way it was. And that was that's something that's just been really shocking. It's like, I really would like to see you. I need to physically look at you and see what your weight is like. And let's look at this, you know. And they 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 are comfortable. They have developed that level of comfort within that safety net in their home. And I do hope that uh, one of the things that I have had to work with with my patients is trying to get them back to integrate into, into society and have them to trust that they can be safe again. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's the other thing that has happened. And um, we've had, we know that we've had some uh, changes within people as a result of COVID in terms of weight changes. We found more increase in depression, anxiety as I as I talked about, and I think that those are some of the things that can drive behaviors. And and how do we address that within that pop within the popu- within that population? Mm-hmm. So we, I just think, and and I think that um, in, in my thought process is that we're going to have to learn to live with COVID. I don't. I I honestly, you know, because always some kind of variant is coming. So here it is. They're talking about a spike again. And it's like, so the question is, how do people live with COVID? We never had to. So it's like, do you have a pandemic that lasts forever? You know, and so at what time is it no longer a pandemic? It's just something that you deal with. But I think that uh, it just reminds me that this is something that's going to be part of us that we will have to deal with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'll kind of create this new normal. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, and what a great point around like how for individuals with anxiety and depression, like the pandemic reinforced a lot of the thoughts and fears and behaviors that that go along with those um, experiences. Right, and so at some point you want to see, you know, we've seen we've seen an increase in crime. I, I want to see the country kind of settle down. I want to see the world settle down and settle in. And we get to see what what is really going on here. What are things like? Yeah, and adjusting to, like you said, COVID's not going away. It's just kind of taking its different forms and impacting us differently I, I, I over think time. it's going to just pick up in different forms. And I do mm-hmm. not think it's going to go away. Yeah. So thinking about that, um, I mean, you've, you've been president during a tumultuous year, to say the least. Um, what kind of impact do you hope to make in the field um, and your community through your leadership and practice of psychology? You know, I never really thought about it like that. And I, I was reading the questions and I never thought about the impact that I would make in terms of my leadership. It's, it's almost that it's just that this is something that I want to do. And I know, I hope that that can make a difference. So for example, um, yeah, I've been a federal advocacy coordinator for Georgia for a long period of time, over 20 years. And um, one of the things that I really, truly believe in is people having access to adequate mental health care. And so that is something that I want to see happen. And, uh, and when I say access, we're, we're, we're doing a terrible job in um in improving reimbursements where uh, providers would feel comfortable and in, 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 in being on insurance plans. There's some, many just don't even want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. 
but how do we get it to the point where people can feel comfortable enough to go into to receive mental health services and they will have somebody that will be able to work with them that can understand them, that can be culturally competent. Um, I don't know if my work as fellow advocacy coordinator is helping that to occur. I don't know if uh, my initiative on psychology's role in achieving health equity will make a difference with that or some things that I'm doing with Leadership Atlanta is helping with that. But I do know uh, that that is one of the things that I really believe in. And when I try to, when whatever it is that I do, I always kind of have that in mind to work towards people having access to adequate uh, care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, and, and if we're going to uh, really make a difference out there in the world, then we have to make a difference within ourselves. And that's the, hence the beginning of that apology that I was um, talking about. And so how do uh, we get providers to feel more culturally competent to work with people or how can we get models in which uh, care um, will be um, there for people who have just insurance and people will want to work with the insurance uh, that that's out there. And, and, and to be truthful, it's really hard to get really experienced clinicians to be on these insurance panels. I'm on the panels because I, again, I believe in people having access to adequate mental health care. Yeah. So all the, the factors that work in that parallel process of both encouraging um, individuals from different groups to feel comfortable, especially people who feel comfortable seeking services um, wow. and also getting clinicians to the point when they are A, competent um, mm-hmm. and B, willing to, to accept payment and, and mm-hmm. work with the insurance companies. Yeah. You know, my being the president is making a difference with that. I just kind of work with what I believe in and I hope that I can, that I can see people get more access to adequate mental health care. So that's one of the things that I would like to see happen. But I don't have this big audacious goal in in terms of changing the world, you know. I don't have that, so... Well, I think some of that shines through like your, your mission and um, what you're passionate about shines through in that apology. And I think like, like you said, that's one step towards um, achieving that broader goal. So like thinking about some of these challenges you're describing, some of them I'm sure at times feel insurmountable. Like what, what helps you maintain motivation? (laughs) Um, it, it, it can sound cliche-ish, but it, it is true. Um, I keep my eyes on the prize. I, I keep my eyes on the prize. And, it, it, and, and that's really interesting because it was that's what I did when I was in graduate school. Because that I means talking about something that was insurmountable. I was, at, I was in a clinical psych program at Florida State where there were like 12 students. And I was like, there were, for five years, we only had uh, two people of color in those whole five years of that clinical program. And so, and, and, and you're talking about in the 80s that this was going on. And, and, and I had to keep my eyes on the prize and I knew that that was something that I wanted to get. And so and if it meant me just doing what I need to do to take it one semester at a time, 
I did that. If it meant that I had to be strategic in knowing which class I was going to take or what internship I was going to apply for, uh, I did that because I had to, I, I, I kept my eyes on the prize and the decisions that I made um, were based on where I wanted to be, that prize, my end goal. Mm -hmm. So, and, and so as it related to the um my prize uh with this year it was really about psychology's role in achieving health equity and the eyes on the prize was really about the apology and and it, it wasn't the apology that people had the most challenge with it was the whole thing about because there were three resolutions one the second was about dismantling systemic racism for whatever reason, that was one of the ones that people had a lot of the issues with it. They didn't like the process uh, or whatever. And it, it, was, it was very frustrating to me. And I knew that we couldn't do what we needed to do unless we really addressed that and, and really um, you know, embraced those um, resolutions. And I tell you, and we did it, but it, wasn't, it was not necessarily so easy, but... We, we did it. Yeah. 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 And thinking about that, like how, how did you get those people on board? Like, what was that process like to get them to committed to those parts that made them um, hesitate or, or found difficult? Um, different people can tell you different things that I did. <laughs> um, number one is I had a great team that was behind me. Uh, supporting me, the task force that I had. Now I had so there were two task forces: a task force dealing with racism, and then a task force dealing with uh, health equity. So there were two. There were two great task forces, and they were both uh, behind me. And that's always one of the good, uh, the keys of leadership, is that you want to appoint people that you trust. I kid you not. You trust that you know that they uh, that you're on the same wavelength, that you guys have the same goals in mind, and they're going to have your back and they're going to be there for you. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure that you have that. So that was one of the things that I, I did is that I had uh, the people behind me. I had uh, a great staff. APA has just an amazing um, group of people working. They really, really do. And so I, ha I had a, a great staff uh, working with me. But I, there, there, there were uh, things along the way. And the, and the thing that, that was very interesting about it, um, Hannah, is that it was hard to tell how much was it about race because race, people just do not like the, the fact of dealing with race in America. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. we do everything that we can to not deal with race. Now, let's put it off to next year. Let's put it off to next year. And so, and then it never gets done because race is messy. And there's, there's nothing clean cut about it. And you have to make some decisions that will be difficult decisions. So I don't know how much of it was, was it about race. I don't know how much of it was about Jennifer Kelly being this uh, Black female president who is um, pushing boundaries here, um, pushing people to do things that they are not, or they were not necessarily comfortable with, mm -hmm. and and I'm staying and I'm staying the course with that. So it could be a mixture of of the above. 
um, and but in any or whatever other reasons. And so it's hard to tell how much of that came through. But um, but I, you know, I I push the boundaries on things. On yeah, I and I know I did. <laughs> I push the boundaries and, and they people look at things that they necessarily did not want to look at. And and I, I had my moments. And so what I would I, I would have to say to people. So I want you to I want you to know how this makes me feel. Now, if you are a person of color, how would you feel if somebody's going around you to make a decision instead of going through you? Mm-hmm you have to work with me and I can't tell you if you went around me because you disrespected this black female and you didn't want to deal with her and you didn't feel like you had to deal with her I don't know if that was it or not but I can tell you how it made me feel as a black woman and you're going all around me would you have done that to somebody white so I just want you to think about that now (laughs) so that means that I am making people think about things that they ordinarily would not think about. Mm-hmm. So I've had situations like that, you know, during the course of the year. But there are many people who would not say that to folks and they may start responding in passive aggressive ways. But no, I'm going to be upfront with you about it and how it made me feel. Now let's talk about what we're going to do about this. You know, you just try to go around me. Let's talk about working with me with this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And hearing you talk about that, I feel like that approach comes through so clearly in the apology as well. Like the language, the way it's structured, mm-hmm. it's direct, it's clear. Um, and it, it says it flat out. Um, so I think that really shines through in the apology. Again, that's because I've had a great group of people uh, that, that, you know, that, we're responsible for it. And, and like Dr. Akbar is just so good. And so, but, you know, I had to feel comfortable with what we were putting out there because my name would be attached to it. everything that would come out would be my name would be part of that. So mm-hmm. yeah. so having that team and, and mm-hmm. having people in your corner and who, who have the same values as you around these um, challenges and how to go about addressing them. Have the same belief systems. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so now I'm going to kind of switch over a little bit more to more leadership focused questions. So mm-hmm. thinking about your role as APA president, like what, what led you to serve? I get the sense that you were driven a lot by, you know, keeping your eye on the prize. And I imagine that was one way to, to keep doing that, but I'd love to hear more about that experience. Yeah, that was a good question. Um, uh, because I, I looked at that and it, it was really interesting, how I got to the point where I just made the decision to run for president. And quite the contrary to what people would think, it was not, I never had this thought process that I was going to be the president of APA. What practitioner has the time to be the president of APA, really? (laughs) Uh, But I'm going to go back to uh, when I was running uh, well, no, I was trying to make the decision. I, I thought it was such a big deal back there in the day. That was in 1999, uh, 1998. They wanted me to run for president of the Georgia Psychological Association. And it's like, you know, I, I'm not sure that I'm ready to do this thing, this leadership thing. And so uh, that was um, 
this woman that I was, um, that I got a chance to meet, she was actually a mother of a friend of mine who was uh, this from a very high political family in, in, in the metro in Atlanta area, a very well-known family. And I was meeting with her, it was just me talking with her, she, a lovely person and just, just brilliant. And um, and she said to me something that I I never forgot. And I mean, you've and you've heard this before. Now I always knew that you know that my cognitive thinking was pretty high up there. Okay, I never felt you know that incompetent in any kind of way in that regard. But I didn't have. I never thought about it at a level that she presented. And she said to me to whom much is given, much is required. And I was like, really? <laughs> and so, yeah. And so, and I thought about that and she, um, and and she went and um, talked to me and, and I made the decision to run for president. She thought that I would be a great president of, of, of the association because she, there was something that she saw inside of me. And after that period, after I became president, I got this uh, letter from Leadership Atlanta saying that you've been nominated to um, participate in this class of Leadership Atlanta. And this is all about developing leaders and not just within the Metro Atlanta community, but they feel like you can make a difference in the world. And it's very rare for psychologists to be nominated for Leadership Atlanta. These are like the top tier people, the ones who make all the money, okay? It's like, why well, am not you know, in this category? And so she, um, they told the, the person, I was mentioning it to my friend, the same friend that I was with her mother. She says, oh, uh, no, that was me who nominated you. And I said, why? She said, because you have you have within you these leadership qualities, these leadership skills. And she says, I just see you know, what you've done with Georgia. And I just think that there's so many things that you can do in terms of leadership. And, and I tell you, that's what really opened up the door to me was really when I got to when I went through Leadership Atlanta and they do leadership. They do number one, they do leadership development while you're it's a whole year program. Mm -hmm. And it's in all areas, whether it's education, criminal justice. Uh, you're looking at uh, public policy because you get a chance to meet with the legislators, uh, health, and so that kind of reminds you of psychology, right? Y'all these different areas, and so and so they really help prepare you to be leaders. And at the same time, um, when you graduate, then you are part of this group of leaders within the Metro Atlanta area. They have all these activities. And, and so I now I, you know, my colleagues are leaders within the Metro Atlanta community. And those are the people that I spend my time with. Well, they all felt that I should be, you know, president of, run for president of APA. And it's like, no. And so I was just getting, doing things because I really enjoyed it. I was on um, the board of professional affairs because I really enjoyed it. I was on the, on the council rep because I was really interested in, you know, the things that are have, have happening within the structure of APA. And I did that. And then, then I got on the committee for the advancement of professional practice because that was my area of interest. Then uh, people began to say, you know, you need to run for the board of directors. I'm just telling you, this is what you need to do. And, then, and that's the way it's always been. You need to run for recording staff, but this is what you need to do. Oh, I, I see you running for president. It's like, come on now. And then uh, it's like, okay. 
well, if I'm going to run for president here, I have to, I mean, everybody was talking about that, that I need to run for president. Okay, that's, you You know, you're the, the next person that really should be doing that. Okay, so I'm going to do this. I have to have a reason for running for president of APA. Number one, you're going to spend a lot of time um, as president. You're going to spend a lot of money running because if I'm going to run, I'm going to have to really get deep into it. I have to figure out how I'm going to, what, what, how will this benefit me? It's not going to put any more money in my pocket because I'm an independent practitioner. I'm not going to get promoted, you know, to being a professor or anything. And I said, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to figure out a way that I can make a difference within people's lives. And that's how my thing about health equity came about. And I don't even know if I'm answering your question or not anymore. Uh, but that, but that's that's how it ended up happening. And then I made that decision uh, to run for president. And I, was, you know, when Jennifer Kelly does something, she works really, really hard at it. And I had, you know, just this, you know, really good campaign. And I really enjoyed running for president. I really, really did. And um, and yeah, and so that's how I got to where I am right now. Wow. And and thinking back on that story, like having that all start with the conversation with your friend's mom and her yeah, seeing and this, she, yeah, this yeah. part of you. Yeah. And I actually have recorded a conversation. I recorded that because it was just, uh, yeah, she was actually, um, she wasn't dying at that point, but, you know, we knew that she had a terminal illness and we just kind of met and she, uh, my friend thought that it would be really good for me to meet her mother. Her mother had been involved in politics on the local level, but her family was very well known politically within the Atlanta community. And that was one of the big, the best gifts I could have was to be able to meet with her. Yeah. And, and community organizers, and, you know, my mom was involved in, in things that she was doing in her association, but I never thought of myself in leadership like that. So, yeah. But my mom reminded me that she was the president of the Mississippi Independent Beauticians Association. <laughs> and, you know, I used to do this kind of stuff. So she reminded me that it came from her as well. I said, yes, mother, I do remember that <laughs> happening. Well, history, so, a long history of leadership in the family. Yeah, I was. And so, yeah, okay, yes, mama, I, I know that. I And I got, my mom just, she died in uh, June, and I have the mm -hmm. plaque that she got from being the uh, president of that. I said, that's just fitting for me to have that. So yeah. that was pretty cool. Yeah, so um, I'm sorry to hear about your mom's passing in June. Um, Thank you. She was she was 89, uh, but she had, she had a good, she had a rich life. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. just, you know, she, she had many blessings in her life. Um, and, and thinking about that, like I'm hearing of, of all the people you have kind of in your corner throughout your career, whether it's your mom, um, your yeah. friends, your friend's mom. Mm -hmm. You know, they were the, 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 you know, the shoulders on which we stand, the shoulders on which we stand. And, and we are always um, give credit to our ancestors, whether it was my, my mama's mother, um, the, um, my friend's mother, my mother. There are many shoulders on which you stand. The pastor of my church, you know, who as a little child helped instill confidence in me and made me feel good, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the people yeah. laid the foundation. I would say so. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I'm wondering if you can describe an example of a great leadership experience you've had in your career. And I can think of many that we've talked about, but I don't know if you identify them as, as one of the great experiences in your career. And it could be with you leading or with someone else leading. I don't know. I, I, I can, I can just go on and on with all the things and I don't, I, I don't even think about them like leadership experiences. I just think about them as experiences that I had, whether it was, you know, serving as the chair of the board of professional affairs and we got something significant that we have to address or whether it was, you know, I was co-chair of the advocacy coordinating committee and we just got this kicked off the ground and, um, or whether it was, you know, record, serving on as recording secretary during the times of the uh, independent review, the Hoffman report, and mm -hmm. seeing APA going through all of those changes. And I was there, you know, in the trenches of, of that occurring and, you know, how we were so fractured as an association and how we could help pull, you know, get things back together and hiring of a new CEO, you know, all of those things. Um, and so it, it and I, it is, it, I can't, I don't know, I can't think of one thing that stands out, but, you, I, but here's the thing that's very interesting. If I have to allow myself to, to sit back and, and, and really think about it. So this last council meeting that we had, we had three significant resolutions that passed that just put. APA, I mean, APA has already been on the international map, but it just got APA so much exposure, such big deal that we did. And it mm -hmm. came out of this thought, you know, it came out of this thought that, you know, we have to really make a difference in, internally if we're going to make a difference in the world and to improve people's lives. So we got these three major resolutions passed. And everybody talked about how great that was. It, it never, nothing ever passes with APA at 100%. So the two task forces that I had, the resolutions of those two task forces, the apology and, and the other one came from out of my task force, 100%. Unbelievable, no abstentions, that, that never happens. Now, the thing that, that people were telling me how great this thing was and you know to get these resolutions passed and people were feeling really really good about that and because well, one of the things that we had done is we always been you know just doing all this internal stuff and not not doing outward facing and so now this is really going to make a difference in society so I felt good about that but the thing that was the icing on the cake and it just kind of wow this is really pretty cool is that that Saturday after the council meeting was over, they gave me, they gave me, and they, they allowed me to have a presidential reception at the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History. So the museum was shut. I mean, like, you, you know, that's some, this is like the most popular museum in the world, right? So mm -hmm. they, the museum was, it was in the evening, so it was open to no one with, but us. We had a nice R&B band. We did, this was really a true story. We had an R&B band. We had just great food there. Um, so people were dancing and the museum was open. We had, they could go and just tour uh, the exhibits and, and people were in just such a good mood. And it's like, 
Wow, that was like the icing on the cake because I know how hard it was to get that museum off the ground and get it going. And to be able to have that way to end the council meeting. That, and the council meeting ended that Saturday. They stayed for the reception. It was a wonderful reception. And that was really like the icing on the cake for that. And it's like, that was like an exclamation point of not me and my leadership with the association, but it was a, it was an exclamation point of us as an association. And the interesting thing about that is I never asked for that reception at that museum. Um, the staff gave, allowed it to happen. Cause I feel like I suffered enough, I guess. <laughs> Seeing it sitting in front of the computer for a year during the pandemic and having to do a virtual convention, so. <laughs> But it was it was really um, it was it was a nice icing on the cake. And I had family members and friends came from all over the country. It was actually quite nice. And that was like, you know, some external validation of something good that I had done, I guess. <laughs> but 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 I, I think of it as more of an external validation of some good that psychology had done, because I don't think that without the support of my colleagues that any of these things would have happened and I never would have had a successful year as president. Yeah, and what a special night to get to celebrate with like family and all those people who are a part of like making it happen, like you said. Yeah. It was good. It, it, it was it was it was good. It was a good event, a good occasion. And it was really about psychology. Mm -hmm. It was really about psychology. So now, like thinking that you're almost the end of your presidential year, what are some leadership lessons that you've learned from leading such a large organization? Never, never give up. <laughs> yeah. Love them the prize. Stay true to your values and what it is that you really believe in. Um, and I tell you, the other the, the lesson learned, and I, you know, I've always, uh, I was one of the faculty for the Leadership Institute for Women in Psychology, and I've always, uh, you know, taught this, but it never, <laughs> it never became reality until I became president. You never know where leadership is going to take you. And um, you have to go with it. You get what you get, and you never know where it's going to take you, and this is what you have. I don't know. What do you if I had thought that I was going to be spending a year in front of a computer and wear a mask and not be able to have a convention in person? I was because I, you know, I'm a social butterfly and I do really good with people, and I got to sit in front of a computer. But you know what? It wasn't for me to make that decision, it was to, for the universe to do that. Mm -hmm. to make that decision for me and that was my world and that's what I got and that's what I had to deal with to be the president during the pandemic and so yeah and so that's that's and, and that's that's the way it was mm -hmm. yeah so rolling with the punches yeah so never give up stay true to who you are you never know what you're going to get and when you decide to do something you got to make decisions that you're going to do this no matter what because you never know what's going to come in front of you. Mm -hmm. And get a good team behind you. Get good people behind you and rely on them for strength and support. Because you're going to need that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people struggle with that as leaders, that, you know, the importance of delegating and, and building that team out of people who you said, like, you can trust to have the same belief system that you have. Oh, times that there are people that I'll call up and it's like, I am so upset. 
I just need to talk to you and they'll take a minute and talk to me and calm me down for a minute, you know. The other thing that I got from this, uh, which uh, APA uh, did, well, they didn't even provide it for me. I got it and the person just gave me the services is that I have a coach. And that coach uh, really um, helped me out tremendously because, it, you know, you're going to face some challenging times and you have to have some external support for what it is that you're doing. Like I say, whether it's your friends, a good team behind you, or if it's your coach or your therapist, therapist mm -hmm. slash psychologist slash coach. <laughs> All of the above. Well, yeah, so all of those are like key ingredients. I can, you know, I have like six more weeks left and I can put all that thing, all that together, you know. Oh, you know, one of the things that I uh, found out that, that that's been very interesting with me uh, serving as secretary, not secretary, I was secretary, as president, is um, people do so much and they don't get recognized for what it is that they do. And I have given out a lot of presidential citations to people of color. They have not been recognized. And it is so, and I, I give them to non-people, to people who are white as well, but I've been giving them to people of, people of color. And it is so meaningful to them to be recognized. It's almost a sense of validation for what it is that they've devoted their life to. It's not that they would not have done that anyway, but for somebody to recognize it and validate it is so significant. So that's the other thing that I think I think is important is to be able to thank people and validate them for what it is that they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are um, those are great lessons. And I think like now that we're we're coming to the end of the interview, I want to thank you and also express like how much the apology um, has meant to both me and the community I'm a part of at um, my program, even in our conversations in class, I think we've all been kind of blown away by the extent to which the APA has accepted responsibility and and outlined things they'll do moving forward. I think much more so than anyone anticipated for many large organizations. So thank you for for that and all the work that you've done to to move our field forward. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me here. And, and uh, yeah, and thank you for inviting me. It's been good. So I appreciate this. Yeah, thank you for making the time. I know your schedule is pretty packed. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership Narratives with the Kentucky Psychological Association. Our sound engineer is Julian Mackerel. A big thank you to the KPA Leadership Academy and Dr. Eric Ress for making this podcast possible. 